0: Well, let me add my welcome. Uh, My name is Rob, and I'm one of the pastors here. And before we turn to God's Word, let's spend some time in prayer. Living God, thank you that you are God with us, and you have spoken to us through your Word. And we ask now that as we come to listen to what you have spoken through the prophets of old, that you give us is to hear you speak. May you open our eyes to see you more clearly and soften our hearts to receive you as you truly are. And may our lives and our minds and our hearts, all of us, God, may we never be the same because of this, this spending time with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered how trees fit in the Bible? I mean, beyond just being chopped down and turned into paper to put in a physical Bible to... No, not not that, but like, how do trees fit into the grand story of what God is doing in Scripture? You know, before preparing for this sermon, I had never thought about this. But there is so much beauty in the world around us. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. The world that God has made, this universe that was made by God, it's pointing us towards him. I recently came across an article by a guy named Matthew Sleeth, and he points out that, other than people and God, trees are the most mentioned living thing in the Bible. There are trees in the first chapter of Genesis, in the first Psalm, and on the last page of Revelation. Trees are important to God, and they're important within the scriptures too. And so today I want to look at three specific trees that we find in, in the Bible: one at the beginning, one in the middle, and one at the end. And of each of these trees, I want to ask three questions. What is the tree? What is its fruit? And where does that fit in the whole story of Scripture? So for these three trees, we're going to ask: what is the tree? What is its fruit? And where does it fit in the story of Scripture? And as we trace these three trees throughout the story of salvation, we'll also come to see just how they ground us in this season of Advent. So let's look at this first tree. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we learn about how God made the world. He created everything with tender and loving care. And in Genesis chapter 2, beginning of verse 5, we read... And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of the life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's a lot of trees just referenced in that passage. Verse 9 says, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. So the first question we just need to kind of clear up is, which tree am I talking about right now? What is the first tree we need to look at? Well, there there are two trees that are specifically named in this passage in Genesis. And we'll come back to one of them later on in my sermon. But uh, for now, I want us to consider the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's at 11 syllables. That's a long title, and it's a long name. But it's also a very specific name, and it's a significant name. And I think it might be helpful just to pause for a second and and consider what this tree is not. Because, you see, this is not the tree of knowledge. I've sometimes heard it referred to as just that, the tree of knowledge. And maybe you've heard it talked about that way too. But it's not the tree of knowledge. Later on in verse 16, God says to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should, shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, God isn't banning knowledge. He's not preventing learning or thought or education. No, God is not against knowledge. God wants us to know about what he's made. In fact, he had Adam name Everything, every single living creature. It's the very first taxonomy of creation. And God wants us to know and learn how to create and be skillful. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 3, it says, I have filled Bezalel with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work with gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for every setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. God is not against knowledge or learning or learning skills and understanding. He's absolutely for it. God is pro-education. He's pro-learning. And it's important for us to get that this is not the tree of knowledge. Rather, it's a particular kind of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. So this tree has a very specific name. And it has a specific name because it has a specific fruit. This tree's fruit is just that. It's the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis, when God made everything, it says that he saw that it was good. In Genesis 1, verse 33, it says, And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Before Adam and Eve ate from this tree, they didn't have knowledge of good and evil. They simply experienced the goodness of what God had made and of who God was. The pastor Darrell Johnson puts it like this. This is not the tree of knowledge. God is not afraid of us having knowledge. It's not the tree of good and evil, as though God had placed before us good and evil and challenged us not to choose. No. Knowledge of good and evil is a particular kind of knowledge. The kind of knowledge that makes us independent of God. But in eating from this tree and partaking of this fruit, Adam and Eve came to learn of what is not good. They came to the place where they could make a moral judgment apart from God. They developed a knowledge that began to drive a wedge between them and God. And that made them independent of God. Because as soon as they ate from this tree, they sought to hide from God. So what does this tree fit in the story? well, it's the origin of our separation from God. There's so much more that could be said and should be said about the knowledge of good and evil and about how that knowledge pairs with action and decision and behavior, leading to sinful action and resulting in injustice. And there's so much more that could be said and should be said about how this knowledge of good and evil is the source of our rebellion from God, how this knowledge of moral judgment has driven a a wedge between us and God and has resulted in the deprivation of God's presence in our hearts and lives now next week Alice is actually going to touch more on this, this topic of darkness and separation and how Jesus is coming as the light so I'll leave him to address some of these things but the point I want to get at for now is, is this the knowledge of good and evil is what resulted in our separation from God it's where all humanity fell away from God. It's where Adam and Eve plunged all of humanity into sin and death. Now this is where the second tree comes in. Let's fast forward in the New Testament all the way to the book of Acts. Acts is kind of like the history book of the early church. Uh, The disciples who had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry are leading this growing congregation of believers as they seek to follow Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit, amazing things were happening as God moved in their midst. But that brought the frustration and the ire of the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And so in Acts chapter five, the apostle Peter is brought in before the Jewish council because he had been proclaiming what Jesus had done in their midst to anyone who would hear. And in verse 30, Peter makes a defense before the council. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. He is witnessing to these things. That Jesus was killed by being hung on a tree. That Jesus was raised to life. That God has exalted Jesus and given repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So let's ask our first question again. What is this tree? Now, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Now, it's a little strange to hear Peter say that Jesus was killed by being hanged on a tree. I mean, Jesus was killed on a cross, he was crucified by the Romans, which was the punishment and death that was demanded by the Jewish leaders and authorities who were frustrated with Jesus. They they wanted him crucified. And the Gospels depict this quite clearly, even graphically. It was a savage death, a death on a cross. So why does Peter say that the Jewish leaders killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree? Well, there, there are two things I want to mention here. The, the first is that Crucifixion is not an easy word to translate into another language. Um, Now, what I mean by this is that the Romans were the ones who really figured out crucifixion. And it was a distinctly Roman act of torture and death. And the verb itself, to crucify, doesn't always translate very easily into other languages. It's, It's a technical term and phrase. And sometimes with other languages, the only way to speak about something technical is to describe it with an expression, trying to convey the idea to somebody else in in words that they can understand. And so that's partly what Peter's doing here by saying, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. It's an expression to describe the act of crucifixion, that specific kind of torture and death that stretched the bounds of language. But not only is Peter describing an act that stretches the bounds of language, he's also making a very specific point He's speaking to the religious leaders and he's kind of just slapping them in the face you see in deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 22 it says and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by god You shall not defy all land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, when Peter says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious leaders of the day, would have instantly thought about this passage in Deuteronomy. In their mind, Jesus was killed on a cross. He was hanged on a tree. And so he was cursed by God. Jesus, the son of God, was cursed by God on the cross. And yet, Peter says that God raised Jesus to life. The cross might not be what we ordinarily think of when we think about a tree, but it's significant that the cross was called a tree. It's significant that the act of crucifixion stretched the bounds of language. It's significant that Jesus was hanged on a tree. So what's the fruit of this tree? I mean, often when we talk about a tree's fruit, I I think of, like, apples and oranges, you know, things that you can go buy in a grocery store. Fruit is is the seeds of a tree. It, it, It naturally creates these things. It's the overflow of the tree. So what's the overflow of the cross? What's the fruit of the tree on which Jesus was hanged? Peter says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, from what Peter says, I see four fruits from the cross. Resurrection, exaltation, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. Resurrection, God raised Jesus to life. Exaltation. Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God the Father. Repentance. God has made a way for his people to turn away from their sins and to come to God. And forgiveness of sins. God has offered us the release, the the remission of sin. Now these four fruits only really make sense in the context of the whole story. So where does this tree what do the fruits fit into that story? Well, if the first tree was the origin of sin, of our separation from God, then the second tree is the origin of our return to God. Humanity fell at the first tree and was redeemed at the second. Did you notice how Deuteronomy said that a person hanged from a tree is, is cursed by God? Peter was making that connection. He was making a point. And for the Pharisees and Sadducees, it was a slap in the face. The hanged Jesus, the crucified Jesus, the cursed Jesus, was lifted up by God. At the first tree, the curse of sin came into the world. And now here at the second tree, Jesus has taken the curse upon himself. The preacher Charles Spurgeon tried to make this point as clearly as he could when he said, Think then of the Saviour's death upon the cross. Mark ye well that it was an accursed death. There were many ways by which men might die, but there was only one death which God pronounced to be accursed. He did not say, Cursed is he that dies by stoning, or by the sword, or by a millstone being fastened around his neck, or by being eaten by worms. Which, by the way, is a very vivid imagination. But he says, It was written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. By no other death than that one, which God did single out as the death of the accursed, could Jesus Christ die? Admire it, believer, that Jesus Christ should be made a curse for us. Admire and love. Let your faith and your gratitude blend together. The dividing wedge that has been driven between us and God from the first tree has been knocked out of the way by Jesus on the cross. And the consequences of the first fruit have been taken up And overcome by the fruits of this second tree, as Jesus bore the weight of the curse of sin upon himself. And now we get to eat of the fruit of this second tree, the fruit of resurrection, the fruit of Christ's exaltation, the fruit of repentance, and the fruit of the forgiveness of sins. But the story doesn't simply end with the cross, there's a third tree we need to look at. It's the best tree of all. So let's fast forward one more time to the very end of the Bible. We're going to go to Revelation now. Uh, The book of Revelation can be a bit of a confusing book for people. And sometimes Christians get a little bit too fixated on this book. It's kind of like they get stuck there. Uh, The author G.K. Chesterton once commented, though St. John the Evangelist who wrote Revelation saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Now, Revelation isn't meant to be a black hole for us to get stuck in uh, as we try and decode what the Bible says about the end times and interpreting what's going on in history right now. It's not meant to do that. It's meant to point us to Jesus. And when read carefully, the way that it invites us to read it, it reveals Jesus just as clearly and compellingly as anywhere else in the Bible, if not more so. And so let's look at the last chapter in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, uh, picking up in verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now let's run through our questions one more time. So what is the tree? Well, it's the tree of life. Now, if you remember from earlier, uh, we've already seen this tree before. It was in Genesis. I said we'll come back to it. It was one of those two trees that was given a name, the tree of life. Now, that might sound sort of mythical, maybe, uh, like the Fountain of Youth or the Holy Grail, you know, the sort of thing that a person's meant to go on a quest for to make a really good, compelling blockbuster movie or entertaining comedy with um, a knight who has a flesh wound. But the tree of life in Scripture isn't meant to be a mythical quest to find eternal life. It's more a symbolic way of describing the life-giving, life-sustaining, life-exuding presence of God. The word for life in the Greek here is the word zoe. Now, there's another word for life in in, in the Greek um, which might seem a little bit more familiar to you. It's, It's the word bios, from which we get the word biology or biosphere. Uh, Daryl Johnson helps to explain the significance of, of this tree being the tree of zoe, though. He says zoe in the Greek, not just bios, but zoe. Bios is the life we inherit from our biological parents, a good life, but a life that decays, runs down, and finally dies. Zoe, on the other hand, is the life that does not run down, because it cannot run down. Zoe is the life God has, and the life God is. God's life is Zoe. It's divine life, the life of God. The tree, this tree, is the tree of God's life. His divine, life-giving, life-exuding, life-creating, life-sustaining essence. It's not the tree of eternal life at least not in the way that we might think of it. No, it's, it's the tree of divine essence, of the fullness of life. And I, I've heard people say before that they don't want to live forever for all of eternity. They don't want eternal life because if forever just involves more of what this already is, they don't think it's worth it. And I mean, who would want to live an eternal life full of pandemics and suffering and disease and, and horror, right? I mean, I wouldn't, but what they miss when they say that, what I think they miss when they say that, is that would be eternal bios, not eternal zoe. And that's not what the tree of life is about. Because this is not the tree of bios. This is the tree of zoe, the tree of God's life, the tree of God's essence coming into the world, sustaining everything. At the end of Revelation, we see the tree of life has has returned from Genesis. And we have been returned to it. So what's the fruit of this tree? Now, the text isn't actually entirely clear. It says in verse 2, The tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So it's got 12 kinds of fruit, which come every single month. It's 12 kinds of, of zoe coming out. But in Scripture, the number 12 is kind of interesting. It's actually it's significant. It signifies something. It's referring to the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a completeness in God's work and plan. There's no fracturing of the fabric of society. God's restored everything. There's harmony and unity among people. So, whatever the exact fruit is, it's abundant and it overflows with fruit each and every month. It's it's the overflow of Zoe, this this coming together, this unity that in in this fabric of society. Participating in God's divine essence, sharing in the life of God. And we will have free reign and access to it. But the text also says. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, if there's been any line or phrase which has stuck out to me as I've been preparing and sitting in this text and and getting ready for this, this study of the trees in Scripture, it's this line. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Because the nations of the world have so much need for healing in our day from political discord to to social unrest, and a ravaging pandemic, the nations of our world have so much need for healing. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. How desperately our world needs these leaves for the healing of the nations, these leaves from the tree of Zoe. To quote Charles Spurgeon again, as the leaves fall from the trees, so does sacred influence descend from our Lord Jesus in heaven down to the sons of men. And as the leaves are the least precious products of a fruit bearing tree, so the least things have to do with him and come from him have a healing virtue in them. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, if these leaves will bring healing to the nations, then how much more amazing must the fruit be? I long for these leaves to come and heal our world, to heal us from strife and division and calamity and pandemic, but even more to heal us from sin and death. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Even these these least things, the leaves of a fruit tree, have a healing virtue in them. So where does this tree fit into the story? Well, if humanity fell at the first tree and was redeemed at the second, it will be renewed at the third. Adam and Eve fell at the first tree, plunging humanity into sin and death. Jesus' incarnation and death was the first coming, the first advent, the first part of the plan to save and remake all that God had made. And here with the third tree, we see the new creation. I love how Eugene Peterson talks about this. He says, the biblical story began, quite logically, with a beginning. Now it draws to an end, not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice renewed creation of Revelation. The product of these beginning and ending acts of creation are the same the heavens and the earth in Genesis, and a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation. The story that has creation for its first word, has creation for its last word. Daryl Johnson says, The biblical vision of the future is not a wish dream. It is not an escape from reality as we know it. Rather, it is a remaking of the reality as we know it. It is a redeeming, a making whole of reality as we know it. This tree of life is at the very center of the new creation. And there's nothing that will guard the tree from us being able to come to it. There's nothing that keeps us from its fruit. There's nothing that keeps us from its leaves. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Friends, we find ourselves now today in between that second tree and that third tree. We're between the cross and the tree of life. And in between what Jesus ushered in at his first coming when he ushered in his kingdom. And what he will bring to completion at his coming again. And that's precisely what Advent is all about. It's about orienting us in the story of God. Of what he is doing in the world. We're not just getting ready for Christmas Day, friends. Advent is so much bigger than Christmas. Maybe that sounds like a bit of a scandal to say, but it's true. Advent prepares us for Christ's first coming on Christmas Day, absolutely. That that day when when the shepherds and angels sang for joy. But in preparing us for his first coming, it points us to his second. It sets our hope on the knowledge, in fact, that Jesus will come again. He will come and judge the world, and he will make all things new. And when he comes... We will come before that tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so we fix our eyes upon the hope that Jesus will bring, that Advent hope. And we hear these words of revelation. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp of sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign for ever and ever. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we say together, Maranatha, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.